Friends, hello, and welcome to Never Post, a podcast about the internet. I'm your host, Mike Rugnetta. Normally, at the top of the show, I'll say something like, let's talk about what happened since the last time you heard from us. But since this is the first time you've heard from us, let's talk about what you can expect from this and most future episodes of Never Post. Then we'll talk about what's happening. Never Post is a show in segments, three each episode. This intro and two story segments, all separated by short interstitials. You'll almost always hear me first, but story segments will be led by all kinds of people. Me, Never Post producers, guests, collaborators, and sometimes you, our listeners. To that point, a lot of segments are going to end asking for your input. Listen until the end of each segment to find out how you can get a hold of us. There are several ways, and you should use whichever is best for you. There's a lot more that I want to talk about. We got a growth plan. There's a lot more other than podcast episodes that we want to make and give to the online audio community, but I've gone on long enough without saying anything fun or interesting, so let's do this. If you're free, please join us uh, on my personal Twitch account, twitch.tv forward slash micrognetta, on Friday, February 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern, where we're going to celebrate the launch of the show. We'll talk about how we made this episode, how we plan to make future ones. We would love to answer questions if you have them. We would love to simply hang out. We have been planning this and putting it together for a long time. So I think a little celebration and uh, let's call it debriefing is in order. All right. I think that's all the stage setting done. Here is where we will normally start things. Friends, hello, and welcome to Never Post, a podcast about the internet. I'm your host, Mike Rugnetta. This introduction was written at 1 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, January 30th. Let's talk about what's happening. In a massive win for accessibility and folks who have no idea what the hell I just said in future episodes of Never Post, Apple Podcasts announced it would start including transcripts in the app. It'll auto-populate transcripts uploaded with episodes, or Apple will auto-generate transcripts through speech recognition if the show opts in. Transcripts will auto-advance alongside the episode as you're listening, and they are, get this, copy-pastable and searchable. It seems like transcripts will take 24 hours or more to process, and this was just announced, so not yet fully rolled out. It might take a little bit before you see it everywhere. You can read more about this on Pod News from last week. There's a link in the show notes. In another massive win, Ring, the video doorbell company owned by Amazon, will be ending its practice of allowing local police to request, without a warrant, video gathered by the technology. At one point, Ring allowed police to email video doorbell owners directly to request footage. Ring eventually required police to post public requests for footage on the Neighbors app, and now police are going to have to get a warrant or prove to Ring that a suitable emergency is ongoing. It could be better, but it has been worse. This, I think, is a win for neighborhoods everywhere. Ring is all over the place where I live, and it really is nothing more than a fan for already roaring flames of paranoia. And personally, I think it should be a lot harder for private corporations to develop surveillance partnerships with the police. You can read more about this at EFF.org and Bloomberg. Links in the show notes. 
Finally, today, Wednesday, January 31st, the day after I've recorded this, CEOs of Meta, X, Snap, TikTok, and Discord will be on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., testifying in front of Congress about digital safety for children on their platforms. This is on the heels of a CDC report three years ago showing sadness and hopelessness are on the rise amongst teens and a number of other unrelated studies that, for certain demographics, suggest that could be because of Instagram, among other things. There's also mounting pressure on platforms from the U.S. government to address, quote, child sexual exploitation. COSA, or the Kids Online Safety Act, was reintroduced last year and is nominally geared towards protecting kids online, but all the folks I trust the most see it as enabling further government surveillance of online activity. Anyway, I don't doubt that social media is part of the cocktail of things making young people's lives harder, but I really, I also wonder when Congress is going to get all the fossil fuel CEOs in the room to talk about climate safety for children. I'm going to start holding my breath now. <sighs> Did it happen? Did they do it? Did it? They? No? Shocker. We got a great show for you this week. Our first segment is about fashion trends for tweens and what happens when legions of individuals attempt to brand themselves as unique influencers on social media, especially TikTok. And then we're going to have a chat about a particular online affliction known varyingly as posting disease or poster madness. madness. In between each segment this episode, and right now, in fact, we will join a man on a mission. Hans Buto, Never Posts, senior producer, filed this audio from Minnesota. And here we are. Cub Foods in Roseville, Minnesota. It is cold out today. Very cold out today. January, Minnesota. Turns out it's cold. All right. Let's look for five crackers, condiments, cookies, bread, Cub Foods, six snacks, seasonal popcorn. Oh, there it is. Aisle eight, soft drinks, juice, tea, beer, and mixers. All right, Coca-Cola products. Coke, 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 Coke. There they are, Dr. Pepper. All right, we got Redbox, Dr. Pepper, established 1885. Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar, red and black box. Diet Dr. Pepper, white box. Dr. Pepper cream soda, white and, no, cream and red box. What is that sideways? Dr. Pepper cream soda, zero sugar, cream and black box. Dr. Pepper cherry, blue and red box. Dr. Pepper cherry, zero sugar, blue and black box. What is this one? Dr. Pepper strawberries and cream, zero sugar. Pink and black box. There's one missing, maybe that's ours. No, Dr. Pepper strawberries and cream is missing. 
They have all these flavors and none of them are the one we want. Well, gee golly. It looks like it might be true. American Hysteria is a podcast that explores fantastical thinking, moral panics, and urban legends to understand how they've long shaped our culture. With topics like stranger danger, the gay agenda, satanic cults, the Westboro Baptist Church, and phantom clowns, the show is sometimes hilarious, sometimes horrifying, and sometimes heartfelt. I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith, and you can subscribe to American Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. The first segment that you're going to hear in this episode of Never Post is from Georgia Hampton, who is with me right now. Hey, Georgia. Hi. How you doing? I'm great. I'm doing fabulously. I don't think we're going to do this sort of thing, sort of like segment introduction uh, bit every time, uh, every episode. But since we're all new here, um, I thought this might be a fun and good opportunity to just say hello uh, and to like do a little introduction, maybe, because you come to Never Post from a sort of like succession of interesting places. Am I right? Yes. I mean, high praise. Very kind of you to say that. But yeah, the way I have found my way here is perhaps a little different than the way you or any of the other producers have. My background is in culture journalism. That's what I got my master's degree in. For the last three years or so, I was working as a script writer for Spotify in their true crime studio, um, which was... Wild stuff. Yeah, it was... Um, the way that you have described it to me in the past is it sounds like the deepest portion of the content mines. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like, I became very popular with women my mom's age. Everyone, and by everyone, I, I do mean women of a certain age, are like, oh, my God, what's the most messed up thing you've ever written about? And we'll be like over dinner or something. And I'm like, Sharon, listen, I don't think you really want to do this with me right now. <laughs> like, It's not it's not going to be fun for you. Like, I don't want to do this. This segment that we're about to hear is like really just in another another place because it's about uh, tween fashion. So I'm just curious, like, what drew you to that? Well, I mean, after my time in what I would call the murder mines, I was done with that subject and was interested in doing something else. But my interests have always been in culture and the elements of culture that become normalized or overlooked or are affected by different kinds of media, entertainment, the way we use social media, all of that. And this is something actually that I had been thinking about months before we even started working together. Like this is something I was I was getting ready to pitch as a piece. But it was something where 
I say in the segment, like it was being discussed on TikTok in this kind of, huh, what what is going on here? What does this mean? And that's like my favorite kind of topic. Another kind of mystery. Exactly. Yes. Not a murder. Not a a murder. (laughs) Well, not a murder as such. (laughs) No, crucially not a murder. There are no, you know, body parts being found in the woods or whatever. (laughs) Thank God. Okay, good. Uh, I'm going to say that's real as hell. Uh, (laughs) Should we go on with the segment? Yes. Let's let's get in there. Let's go. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to ask you about what you were talking about the other night. So tell me about that, about how some of the kids at your school dressed. Okay. Um, a lot of the girls in my grade dress just like their moms is what I found. They all dress like, um, I don't mean this as an insult. If I could live this life, I would. But um, kind of like a stay-at-home mom who runs errands all day and goes to the gym whenever she can because both the girls at my school and their moms always wear Lululemon. That's a conversation between a friend of the show, Kevin, and his daughter, who's 13 years old. And what she's talking about here is this strange thing that seems to be happening. It's like sometimes I'll like see an older woman from behind and I'll be like, is that like so-and-so from my school? No, that is somebody that could be their mom. That just feels so weird to me. And listen, I'm 30 years old. This is a world I'm not a part of anymore. But when I was 13, it would have been mortifying to dress like your mom. It would also be extremely bizarre. I'm imagining myself arriving at school in a pair of black stretchy capris with a loose-knit leopard print sweater and perhaps a decorative beaded necklace, like just showing up to eighth grade history class in H to T Chico's. It's unimaginable. When I was in that nine to 12 tween age bracket back in the mid 2000s, I had my own ecosystem of fashion that felt like it was made specifically for me. And that's because it was. Limited 2, Claire's, Justice, Libby Lou, a whole suite of brands whose thing was making clothes and accessories for young girls like me. Or frankly, making an entire space for young girls. And over the last 10 years or so, pretty much all of those places disappeared. And I wondered if that had anything to do with what I and Kevin's daughter have noticed happening. I want to paint you a picture. The inside of a limited two was this color-coded, candy-scented fantasy world for girls. Everything was blue and green or pink and orange. The store had a huge light-up pink daisy on the ceiling, and the carpet was this super bright, barney shade of purple. Over by the register, you could buy push pops or baby bottle pops or bubble tape. Famously, you could get your ears pierced, which I did. And Limited 2 was just one of a bunch of places that looked like this. Growing up, there was even a tween home goods store called Dry Ice at the mall near me, 
available for all my beaded curtain, lava lamp, blow up pink lounge chair needs. That's what made all these brands different. They created a tween look, a tween demographic. Everything there was funky without being offensive or cool in the eyes of an 11 year old, but not like dangerously cool. This wasn't Hot Topic or God forbid Spencer's gifts. Nothing at Limited 2 would get you sent to the principal's office. It was PG rated fashion. But now obviously things are very different. Limited 2 left the mall in 2010. Libby Lou declared bankruptcy, then Claire's, then Justice. And that was it. No other stores stepped in to take the daisy-clad, hot pink plastic blow-up throne of tween fashion. Like I said, I'm not a tween. But even I noticed this. And a lot of other people did too, especially on TikTok. The 10-year-olds have nowhere to go! There seems to no longer be a market for specifically preteen and teenage girls. Everybody keeps talking about how it's 10 and 12 year olds in Sephora and Ulta, but they're not talking about how there's no tween stage of life anymore. Once you turn like 10, 11, 12, you start jumping and doing stuff that you do like at 17, 18 because there's no gap in between because everybody forgot about the fact that kids are children, even as teenagers. Nowhere to go! What this tells me is that when it comes to fashion, The tween demographic isn't really important to brands anymore. So what is? My name is Professor Elizabeth Wissinger. I am a professor of sociology at the CUNY Community College of Borough of Manhattan Community College, BMCC. I am a professor of liberal studies with a concentration in fashion studies at the CUNY Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And I am really interested in how technologies and bodies interact in ways that affect society over time. I talked with Professor Wissinger to understand what had taken the place of the quote-unquote tween brand. And, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of factors at play. But according to Professor Wissinger, it all starts with the rise of the social internet. Before we had Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, changes in fashion were dictated by a very small, very specific set of gatekeepers. You had to be an editor at a fashion magazine, or you had to be somebody photographed in a street style blog. And prior to blogs, you had to be a fashion model or somebody who was going to the shows who might be photographed outside the tents or, or a socialite. This meant that the pool of people making decisions was small. And then, with the social internet, that power started to shift. You weren't only looking at magazines, you were looking at people online. On Instagram, or YouTube, or more recently, TikTok. Especially TikTok. Get ready with me for my Barbie shoot. Get ready with me for picture day. Welcome to a day in my life as a full-time content creator. I woke up this morning and got ready, just threw on a cute little tracksuit, made my bed. What to wear when you don't know what to wear. So first we need concealer. The opportunity to create an online presence for yourself, market yourself, become a brand in and of yourself became an option. But brands always have associations. They don't have any meaning unless they're connected to other brands out there in the brand universe. So when you're doing self-branding, you are using the tools of branding to present a persona 
that will gain you notoriety or fame or acclaim. So if you have a phone and an internet connection, you could, in theory, start establishing yourself as a tastemaker, someone to be taken seriously, a person with special and unique ideas about fashion. You can build your own little island around yourself as a voice worth listening to. You can do it. Anyone can do it. Everyone can do it. But that comes with its own problem. A lot of individual voices create kind of like a cacophony that ends up sort of blending into just one loud sound. And so it flattens out the individual inflection of individualized personalities in terms of how the public interprets them. It's this shaving down of nuance. Everyone is an individual online, but because everyone is unique, no one is. It's a weird tension between wanting to be special and different, but also attractive to a lot of people. It's like you want to appeal to the masses with your individuality, which has been the conundrum of being fashionable since the beginning of fashion. But now it's like on steroids with the fact that everyone can be a fashion influencer if they use these tools. What matters here is bridging that gap between uniqueness and accessibility. A fashion trend should be interesting, which means it should have something new to say or a new take on an old idea. But you don't want to limit your potential audience. And declaring any given trend as a tween style just doesn't seem to make sense anymore. Or as Professor Wissinger put it, it seems that it's less lucrative to, to limit your marketing to a specific age group now than it was then. So if you're a teen and you're showing how to construct a look, if you want to go viral with your post, you don't want to post, this look is for teens. You want everybody interested in your look. And if you're an older, more mature influencer, you're not going to say, well, these outfits are only good for 50 and older. You may go in as a mature influencer and say, look, I can look like this as a 50 and older, but really you can learn from my look no matter what age you are. That's why you get 13-year-olds dressing like their athleisure moms because the marketing is for as many people as possible. Age-specific trends just don't matter in the way they might have in the 2000s. What does matter is having trends that are appealing and interesting to the widest margin of people, regardless of how old they are. So for a girl aged 10 to 12, the question is no longer, what does a tween girl my age dress like? It's just, who do you wanna be? It's more about an aesthetic than anything else. You can be goblin core if you're into collecting little trinkets and wearing brown and green. Or maybe you're a coastal grandma, which means you basically dress how Diane Keaton currently dresses, turtlenecks and lots of linen. Whatever hyper-specific niche you're looking for, there's a mood board for it. The point is that you're the tastemaker of your specific individual style. Well, you and your algorithm. I mean, there are suites of products that people are identified with in terms of the algorithms that look at like where you shop, when you shop, how you shop, what do you buy? Like all of the, that information is being processed all the time. So the Lululemon people, the kids and the moms might be just inside a very narrowly defined algorithmic space that markets very specifically to that income bracket, geographic location, that zip code, that private school. Okay, 
So instead of your age mattering in regards to fashion trends, it's more about where the algorithm can place you. Geographically, sure, but also monetarily, your race, your aesthetic interests, a whole host of other signifiers, but not necessarily your age. So instead of limited to existing as a tween-only space, you have trends that are catering to a specific vibe, a specific corner of the algorithmic space that the machine brain of the internet has placed you into based on your measurable qualities. But that has its limits. Sure, the algorithm can give you this extremely curated experience that is handpicked for you specifically, but if there's just more of a certain kind of content and it becomes inescapable, the more you interact with it, the more the algorithm thinks you like it, rinse and repeat forever. To put it another way, those kids Kevin Stoddard was talking about, like, I'm sure their TikTok for you page looks different than mine, but it might not look different from other women my age who might, I don't know, be into athleisure in a major way. I like was scrolling on TikTok and I see like, like this girl dancing and then her mom and they were wearing almost identical outfits, but one was blue and the other one was pink. They looked the same, but one was like 20 years older. I was kind of like, wow, uh, this is real. I don't know. <laughs> thanks to Kevin and his daughter for sharing their thoughts. And thanks to Professor Elizabeth Wissinger for her fascinating insight on all of this. You can read more of her work online and in her book, This Year's Model, Fashion, Media, and the Making of Glamour. There's also a part of this story that didn't make it into the episode because I'm kind of still parsing through it. Basically, I think there's something really wonderful about kids being able to create their own fashion identity in this super individual way. But I also think it's weird that middle school girls are being mistaken for their own parents based on the way they dress. And I wanna hear what you think about this. How does this strike you? How does it make you feel? Call us and leave us a voicemail, send us a voice memo, write us an email. All of the ways you can get a hold of us are down in the show notes. Hi there. Hans Buto, senior producer for Never Post here. You know what we do in this part of the show. We ask you to help us. And there are, as always, a couple of ways you can help us. You can become a subscriber to the show if you aren't. Rad. Love that. Uh, you can tell a friend to listen. Double rad. Double love that. Review on iTunes. Fabulous. All of those are incredible and actually really helpful ways to support the show. And we appreciate all of them. But there's one specific thing that you can do for us right now that would really help the show, and that is to send us your voice. Here's the thing. 
I am working on a couple of new interstitials. So that's the interludes, the pauses, the moments of reflection that we build into each episode. And we want your stories for those interstitials. We want things like, what is your favorite hidden corner of the internet? Or what was the best computer you ever owned? Head over to neverpo.st slash interstitials to see all of the prompts that you can respond to. We will keep updating that list because we'd love to hear from you about a lot of things. So neverpo.st slash interstitials. There's also a link in the show notes. Come someone with a cart full of Dr. Peppers. Excuse me, sir. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you all, do you have caffeine-free diet Dr. Pepper? Caffeine-free. Zero caffeine-free, no. No, you don't have caffeine-free? Yeah, we have the zero, we have the diets, and we have regular caffeine-free. Zero diet and regular, but not caffeine-free. Yep. Oh, can you not get it? I don't know. It doesn't come. I've never seen one, actually. You've never seen it? Yeah. Ah. Uh-uh. Foods or Target, where I work. Nothing. Some other stores might have it, but... Nothing. Yeah. We have Pepsi caffeine-free. Okay, but not Dr. Pepper. All right, thank you. Well, oh, what's your name? Lloyd. Lloyd, I'm Hans. All right. That was a Lloyd Pepsi delivery guy. All right. Well, on to the next. Sometimes the internet makes me feel a little crazy, as I'm sure it does you too. Social media especially. My friend Tim once used this phrase, diabolic merriment, which I think about often as the sort of like tizzy one can get in, caught in the swirling tides of online. For instance, you know, like sometimes I stay up a little late. Uh, I think I don't have work tomorrow. I'll have a little scroll. And we all know how this goes. Diabolic merriment. Then I'm up till the wee dark, and the next morning I have scroller's remorse. A different kind of social hangover. But I just, I couldn't tear myself away. I'm lucky, though, maybe, in that while I often spend too much time looking, I almost never spend that time posting. Not anymore, at least. Perhaps you're getting a little insight into why this show is named what it is. I don't really desire to contribute most of the time in posts because I know what it can lead to. I've lived it and I've learned that kind of thing. Not for me, especially on social media sites like um, Twitter or X and Blue Sky, etc. But some people, they live for it. They need the attention or some byproduct of it. They just can't stop themselves. Another friend of mine, Bijan Steven, said something to me once that I also think about often. A turn of phrase that is perhaps the other side of the diabolic merriment coin. And that turn of phrase is what this segment is about. 
Joining me now is Bijan Steven. Bijan is a writer and narrative designer. He's written and reported for Vice, Vox.com, and The Verge. He worked as a senior editor at Campside Media, where he hosted, reported, and produced the narrative history podcast Eclipsed and the true crime series Chameleon. He's currently a music critic at The Nation and a contract writer at Valve. Bijan and I also spend a lot of time together playing the actual play podcast Fun City, where Bijan is the mysterious retired boxer TK. Bijan, welcome. It is very strange and fun to talk to you in a podcast setting where there are no dice involved. Yeah, I, it's a little weird, but I'm I'm liking the lack of a dice roller. I'm going to be honest. They're not <laughs> terribly nice to me. <laughs> but thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I have like a, a big real question for you um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with some background. So a while ago, you and I were hanging out and we were talking about the Internet, uh, as we are wont to do. And you said something to me that has just stuck like a quill in my brain ever since. It is a turn of phrase that I found so immediately resonant that like I cannot stop thinking about it. You described someone as having posting disease, the disease of posters, of people who post things on the Internet. But crucially, it seems like it's not everyone who posts has posting disease, only certain people. So I was wondering, just to get us started, if right off the bat, you could just describe what is posting disease? Yeah, of course. Um, posting disease, uh, also known as poster's madness, is uh, what happens to your brain uh, when you've been online too long and you start seeing the world and experiencing reality in terms of the posts you're going to make about it. When you've spent so much time online that everything looks like a post to you or a potential post, mm. I mean. Okay, this is interesting because I think of posting disease as when someone posts on the internet and either just the action of posting or the very content of the post is going to be directly harmful to them. So to be clear, like the act of posting is bad for them and they know it and they do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's related because I think I think one is uh, the early symptoms and one is the far more advanced disease. <laughs> Which one is the advanced side? I think I really like that when you when everyone in your life is like, I hate what you're doing. I hate your posts and I hate you because of them. And, you know, you can't stop doing that or seeing the world in those terms. Um, like if you're, for example, like Graham Lynham, the guy who created the IT crowd, Hey, Mike here. I just want to break in really quickly to say, in case you don't know, Graham Linehan is a British TV producer who worked on Father Ted, Black Books, and the IT crowd. He has spent the last several years waging an unceasingly cruel crusade against the trans community online. By his own account, this has made his life much harder. Or, as Bijan goes on to say, Like, you just, you lose your mind, you lose your wife, then you lose your job, and then you lose your agents, and you descend into a hell of your own making which is just populated by your thoughts about the world. Uh, And there's a bunch of people you can see agreeing with you, but nobody else in your real life appears to. Uh, And I think it takes months of posts like that before you sort of get to, you really have full-blown posters disease. Do you think that posting disease is a kind of addiction to social media that clouds otherwise open and receptive parts of your personality? Or do you think it like it's bigger than that? 
or or less. I think it's I, I feel like it's an unfortunate consequence of living on an internet that people have decided needs to make a ton of money. Like the the reasons that posting disease and develops into posters madness, et cetera, are specifically because of the incentives, right? Like algorithmically sorted feeds reward certain kinds of posts and don't reward other kinds of posts. And once you've learned how to get the algorithm to notice your posts, that's where the disease sort of begins to develop. And I think because all of these algorithms to a larger or lesser extent prioritize engagement, which means like engagement from all of the other users seeing your post, any post with like sufficiently inflammatory or out there or just weird ideas can get picked up because other people are either dunking on it, which is another signal to the algorithm that this is more engagement. Like, Because like the other thing, engagement is neutral. It's like to an algorithm, a dunk is the same as like not a dunk. It's the same kind of engagement. The more people hate it, the more it gets shared, the more it gets dunked on, the more engagement you get. I mean, and all of these like behaviors are positively reinforced by like the numbers, right? The metrics go up when you do these things. This is a very seductive illness. It's like something that truly like it, it takes hold very subtly. And then when you realize maybe what's happening, you're kind of in too deep to stop. Those decisions, those behind the scenes technical decisions of what to weight more heavily and what to promote and what not to promote, I think are the things that actually induce posting disease in people because the human brain is not designed to produce this much dopamine kind of like every notification gives you a little hit of a good feeling. And I think that specifically, the act of being able to receive positive reinforcement at a, at and a to, distance and is, to like is, summon it. You can like you can, yeah. you can really like cast a spell and have it brought to yeah. you. Yeah. And it's it's really powerful, especially if you're feeling lonely or isolated or somewhere where you can't really get that affirmation in real life. I think it's it's really powerful, but it's a double-edged sword, right? Like it's it can be really good for you or really bad for you. Um, and it can both be good and bad at the same time, which I think is the confusing part about all of this. Okay, so now that we have like a sort of theoretical backbone and a definition, I wonder if we can get practical and just talk about what are some things out in the world that are the biggest examples of posting disease or even like people who exhibit it almost like paradigmatically? Yeah, I think... Um the most obvious answer uh, is Elon Musk. Um, I think mm. Graham Lynham, who I mentioned earlier, another guy who suffers from posting disease. I think um, any turf in the UK, all the mums net posters, those those people are fucking nuts. What do they all share that makes that puts them in this group? They share um, they share uh, a desire to be victimized, <laughs> to be the victim uh, of whatever situation they're in. Uh, I think they also seem to share like this this basic sense of aggrievedness. Like they are they are perpetually crotchety about something in society. Like they want to convince people that their views are correct about things mm. and they, the way they see the world is the right way to see it. That's a big thing, I think, for this group of people specifically, like Elon Musk, Graham. Uh, J.K. Rowling. Exactly. It's like they all seem like they really they want a very specific group of people to like them. Yes. And for some reason, they view posting as the main way to do that. Yes. And it, it seems like instead what is happening is that for each of them, it is just ruining them. Posters madness in, in its most full blown forms is like it's like drinking seawater. 
Like, yeah, maybe you'll feel a little less thirsty and then you'll feel much more thirsty. It's never going to accomplish the thing you want it to. But I think we should say also, or we should recognize that this is a very particular stripe of posting madness. And that to yes. me, there is there is another stripe of it, which is like Chrissy Teigen, who has yeah. publicly admitted, she's like, I have, like, I gotta step away. I am doing this too much. And then couldn't. And like, you know. She also has not seemed to have posted on Twitter since May 8th. So there is hope. Or like, does Alyssa Milano belong in this grouping at all? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so why, why? Why You're looking at the post right now. Can you tell us why? Resistance posters are also like, they, they fall into this category because they do think posts online are equivalent to taking actions in the real world, like with your physical hands and legs and stuff. And the idea that you have to weigh in on everything that happens in your specific domain is, is, yeah. is a sign. It's like, that's another yeah. symptom. I think of Alyssa Milano as belonging to a group of people who have a posting madness that also includes, like, say, Brooklyn Dad Defiant. Yeah, who the resistance another, grifters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, another sort of like, yeah, resistance grifter or, you know, uh, depending upon who you talk to, like Democratic Party operative, uh, liberal shit poster yeah. uh, is something I've seen people describe him as. People who are doing this kind of uh, fight picking. You know, it's like every mm -hmm. post is arguing against some imagined interlocutor who might right. never actually exist or interact with them. Right. You make up a guy and get fucking mad at them. That's a classic. May classic you way make up a guy. The classic move. Make up a guy. I think um, the most enduring discourses are like the low stakes cultural friction ones, like where it's like washing your legs. White people don't wash your legs. That was a discourse. The dress, another kind of it wasn't really a discourse, but it was like the kind of thing that is extremely low stakes that everyone can have an opinion on and everyone can do a riff on because, you know, it's that's the whole thing is where you can. Do you see it or do you not see it or what are you seeing? You know, and it's something you can have a perspective about what's right on. Exactly. And it's so low stakes that it does not matter. Maybe the the sort of hierarchy that we're developing here as far as what meaningful vectors of posting disease are is that all trends are low-level vectors of posting disease. It is possible sure. that they will trigger its development, but that any amount of discourse is a stronger vector. And the more one can reasonably say that they are correct about their take on that discourse, the stronger the vector for posting disease it is. So something like the dress it's like, I think probably very low likelihood that someone could be insistent that their perspective on it is absolutely right. factually right. Whereas right. washing your legs, something that I feel like is maybe a middle of the road, you can more vociferously defend your position as being correct, especially I think if your position is wash the legs, because that feels like moral high ground. Yes, I think the internet is is flattening in the way that it does not seem to allow people to have two thoughts about the world at the same time. Nuance is not incentivized. And I think that's why posting in the gray area about gray area subjects is always going to lead to like stronger, worse opinions um, because other people could be right, you know? Yeah. If you're recognizing yourself in some of these examples, maybe it's time to take a second and think because I do think this is not untreatable. It's not like something, it's not a death sentence. It's not like an, a social death sentence, I should say. You just have to like sit down and rethink what's going on. Like you you just need to, to make sure that your engagement with 
the social platforms and the internet at large is something that is positive and healthy and generative and not something that's, you know, making you feel terrible all the time. Like if you're wondering why people are just yelling at you all day in your mentions, the problem is you. To follow our epidemiological metaphor that we have with posting disease, at least less so posting madness. I wonder if we could get prescriptive and to say, you, the poster, uh, the imagined poster, here are the things that you can do, the preventative measures that you can take to prevent yourself from contracting this illness. What is the pre-post safety checklist uh, (laughs) that that we can put together? Yeah, that's a good idea. I I think... um Knowing what your post is about and what your real intentions with it are. Are you trying to promote something? Are you trying to start some discourse? Are you trying to respond to some discourse? Are you subtweeting? Like, are you, what are you doing? Second thing is thinking about the potential impact of your post on your life. Is this going Mm -hmm. to make your life marginally worse in the next 20 minutes to two days? Uh, And if so, like, just don't, don't do it. If you can't handle it, you know, like if, if you can't handle the heat. Stay out of the posting kitchen. Stay out of the posting kitchen because you're not ready to cook. If you are going to post and you've decided to make the post and you're, you have your heart set on it, just think about like whether or not you actually want to handle the kind of criticism that you might invite uh, from the worst bad faith weirders online who can't tell between not liking something and thinking it's morally bad. You know, like, like what will you do when your post, if your post escapes containment? You know, that's, I think that's a, another good question to ask yourself. I will also say the one thing that you should really do is just never assume the thing you're doing is normal because there are so many people and so many different kinds of experiences. And it's the, the funniest low stakes dunks are people being like, what, you don't wash your legs? That was like a week of discourse on Twitter. Yeah. And it's just like, huh, <laughs> why did we do that? Do I absolutely need to contribute to this conversation is I think yeah. a very important question to ask that's oneself. The que- that's, that is really the question. That's the, the guiding thing. It's like, what am I actually doing here? Can I just turn to someone or text a friend about this instead? I think one thing to remember is that there's almost no way to win an argument online because people will never say that they were wrong. If you're actually sure about what you're doing and you realize people just don't understand it, that's one thing. But then you got to be able to walk away. You got to be able to walk away. You also got to be able to distinguish when you've actually been wrong. So if you're going to post, admit to yourself the possibility that you might be wrong about what you're posting. If somebody's like, hey, rethink this, I have to be able to distinguish from whether they're being assholes or not and trying to just teach me something. Because it is your responsibility if you're going to post. You, you can't miss an opportunity for learning, I think. Because like, posting is obviously a two-way street. Like you, you are reaching out to a bunch of other people to try and connect with them. Uh, and it is, I think, the base, your base responsibility to have the humility to think that you might be wrong and, somebody ha- and other people have things to teach you, you know? I think that's extremely meaningful and great advice. I'm, this is the, the advice that I'm always trying to take myself, but I hope somebody finds it useful. Bijan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to have a chat with us about posting disease and how to avoid it. Of course, anytime. I love talking about posting, unfortunately, which is it's in itself, you know, that's a slippery slope. Where can people find you and your work online? place i'm posting the most these days is blue sky um but yeah you know i actually i do i have a blog i have a website it's a uh, <laughs> bishonstephen.blog that's right let's go
Thanks again to Bijan for joining us. One thing that we didn't do in this segment is develop a really strong distinction between posters disease and posters madness. We talked about them as though they were similar and used them kind of interchangeably, this understanding that one is maybe a more advanced version of the other. But I'm curious what you think. Do you think there's a distinction between the two? And if so, what is it? Let us know. Call us or send us a voice memo. Tell us what you think, and we may respond to your message on an upcoming episode of Never Post. You can find instructions for the multiple ways to send us a message in the show notes and on our website at neverpo.st. Hi, excuse me. Can I just ask, I've never seen, so there's a big debate online, caffeine-free diet Dr. Pepper is a thing they make that no one can get. Well, that would actually be through... That'd be through Pepsi. Through Pepsi. So... Interesting. Yep. So it wouldn't be through the cup buyers, it'd be through the Pepsi people. Right. Yep. Got it. We have it in our system because we've carried it before. Yeah. But if they're not able to bring it to us, then we obviously just don't certain have Certain things that certain regions of Pepsi doesn't carry. Yeah. Like, we don't carry the caffeine-free diet Mountain Dew up here. Yeah. In other areas of the country, they do. Oh, wow. Don't know why. Yeah, um, that's what I want to know. Pepsi does it. Okay. Yeah, I'd reach out to Pepsi on that. Okay, thanks a lot. Yep. Appreciate it, fellas. This has been Never Post, a podcast about the internet. Never Post will return in two weeks on Valentine's Day. That's fun, but there is already member-only programming on our website, and soon we'll also be uploading an extended cut of my conversation with Bijan. Head on over to neverpo.st or check the links in the show notes to become a member. Thanks again to Kevin, his daughter, Bijan, Professor Elizabeth Wissinger, and of course, Floyd the Pepsi delivery guy. Never Post's producers are Audrey Evans, Georgia Hampton, and the mysterious Dr. First Name, Last Name. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Our executive producer is Jason Oberholzer. And I'm your host, Mike Rignetta. And what is it you're going to say? I'm just going to say something. And what's this you're going to do? I'm going to hide behind language. And why is that? I'm afraid. Cold and Hand Blues by Alejandra Pizarnik. Never Post is a production of Charts and Leisure. <laughs>